Today we'll be reading from Malachi chapter 4 verses 4 to 6, which is on page 851 in the Black Bibles. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And the second reading is from Luke chapter 1 verses 5 to 25, which is on page 907. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division called Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands out in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. They had then realised that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, The Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favour in, in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Thank you, Georgie. And uh, good morning, everyone. Lovely to keep your Bibles open at Luke. Um, the Malachi ones will come back onto the screen. And uh, this morning, as we do most mornings here at OEC, we will, uh, we've had God's Word read, uh, and now we look through it, and uh, we seek to understand what God has to say to us. So why don't we pray? Lord God, you have gathered us here this morning uh, for your pleasure and our benefit. Uh, Lord, prepare our hearts to hear from you, uh, poke and prod them where they need that, encourage and uplift them where they need that. Strengthen us, Lord, to be the trusting people of you. 
in, Je- in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, life is a million different trust decisions. You've made thousands this week. And we're constantly assessing the trustworthiness of our doctor, our mechanic, our parents, our teachers, eBay sellers, pilots, journalists, politicians, pharmacists, friends, etc. And that little trust decision you make each time shapes whether you will listen or ignore what they say. But how do you make that trust assessment? Well, for centuries and centuries, the masses were encouraged, or truthfully, they were compelled to trust the powerful. The king, the landowner, the patriarch, the matriarch knew best you trusted them. But in the 20th century, things changed. We sought out the experts. We went to the scientists who gave us their findings with a probability of how true they were. We read Choice Magazine or ANCAP and they gave us independent ratings on a washing machine or a car. You go to the bank and the bank boasts about their credit rating given independently. But then 20 years ago, it changed again. Because since the internet, we've found it so much harder to trust people. We have a constant stream of failures and scams and fake news. And so now we just go with our gut, informed by clickbait, really loud voices on the internet, and social media algorithms that determine who you trust. 2,000 years ago, Dr. Luke, he was a doctor, a physician, became a historian. He was convinced that Jesus had the answer to life's deepest questions. So as we saw two weeks ago, he prepared a carefully investigated account of Jesus. It's in your hand this morning. And he used eyewitnesses and sources to give people like you and me the evidence we need to trust Jesus with our life. For at its core, Christianity is a trust assessment. It's not a vague wish. It's not a step into the faith. It is looking at the evidence and asking, is Jesus who he says he is? Did Jesus do what he said he would do? And is he worth trusting now with your eternity? And Luke is absolutely certain the answer is yes. Jesus is the saviour of the world who offers eternal life to all who trust him. When you consider the evidence, Christians can have certain faith. So today we're beginning to join him in his investigation. Now, I don't know where you'd begin in your investigation, but he begins with an old couple who meet an angel. Bit weird. So we're going to explore his beginning this morning. Three points. We begin with a dark story, we begin with a salvation story, and we begin with a human story. Well, let's look at his beginnings. Number one, we begin with a dark story. If you just jump down to verse five, in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. 
What Luke is doing here as a true historian is he's locating us in known and recorded history. This is not Marvel fantasy land. There was a real king called Herod the Great. He ruled Judea from 37 BC all the way through to 4 BC. And he's called the Great because of his building projects. But his character was not great. He was a nasty piece of work. He was tyrannical, cruel, and vindictive. One historian says no woman's honour was safe, no man's life was secure under Herod the Great. The Bible, in a couple of um, chapters later, it tells us of his decision to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. You won't find that in secular historians' account because that wasn't evil enough. They recorded far evil uh, things that he did. In the second half of verse 5, Luke pivots from despot to priest and we meet an old couple with strong spiritual ancestry. We see that Zechariah is a priest. He is a servant of God. And he's married to Elizabeth, whose ancestral bloodline is amazing. She comes from the high priest line of Aaron. But more important than their bloodline was their behaviour. You see it there? Like Noah and Abraham, they were considered righteous before God. Those of you who read the Bible a little bit know that word's important. But this is a moral righteousness which is different to how Paul uses it in Romans. This is moral behaviour. Paul uses it to describe positional righteousness before God. But what we know is Zechariah and Elizabeth, they trusted God and they obeyed God and it could be seen in concrete, visible ways. They were absolutely not perfect, but they had integrity. What is integrity? What you say is shown by your action. They said they had trust and you could see it in their actions. However, there is a big dark shadow over their life. They've been unable to have a child and in those days they felt the deep cultural shame of that. We read they're in the twilight of their years, which means they're over 60. Now, in that day, 60 was not the new 40. Sorry about that. What it meant was they were beyond the age of having children. And so they they knew their future was uncertain. Now, what Luke is doing here is he tells us they are blameless and righteousness before telling us about the dark shadow, because he does not want you and me to think they can't have children because of the judgment of God. That is not what's happening here. They were righteous. What we're being told here is remember the Old Testament. Remember those Israelite women who were barren, but through whom God did great things. Luke wants us to feel the darkness at this moment of history. There was deep societal darkness and there was this deep personal darkness for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he's giving us that because he wants us to know it was difficult to trust God. It was very tempting to doubt his faithfulness. 
even his existence. You know, the advice, just believe and it will be okay, that doesn't work in the dark times. Yet it was in these dark times that God was at work. It was in the dark times that God was getting ready for Christmas Day. But look at verse 8. There's a ray of sunshine. Today was the greatest day in Zechariah's life. It was his career highlight. Now, Zechariah, for those of you who don't know, he's one of 18,000 priests. The 18,000 were broken up into 24 teams or divisions, and they got to serve in the temple for one week, twice a year. Every morning and evening, one priest with lots got chosen to go into the holy place and to burn incense alongside the sacrifice that was being given that morning. All the rest of the priests are in the courtyard and then all the crowds are outside. Morning and night, God's people would express their trust in God and ask him, actually they begged him to redeem them. But do you see it? Today was Zachariah's lucky day. He would stand alone on centre stage praying to God. It was a once in a lifetime moment. But the greatest day in his life was about to take a dramatic twist. For the God of the universe wanted to speak to him. And so we begin with a salvation story. Verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw the angel, he was terrified and overcome with fear. It had been 400 years since God had spoken through the prophet Malachi. That is 400 years of waiting and trusting that God was still there and still faithful. And then Luke tells us on the evening during the reign of Herod, as Zechariah stood on the right side of the altar about to pray, God speaks and Zechariah falls apart. He's terrified. He doesn't say, hey, how you doing? No, he's in the presence of Gabriel. He's in the presence of God's messenger. White, fluffy, winged things, they are not in the Bible. Zechariah is terrified of being in the presence of God's messenger. But God's messenger's got a message, seven parts. Number one, it's good news. Phew. Point two, God has heard your prayer. Now the question is, you're all asking is, which prayer? Was it Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer for a baby? Well, no doubt they prayed that, right? Or was it Zechariah as the priest and all the priests and all the people praying night and day for redemption? For God, Old Testament, to fulfill his promises to send a saviour and redeem his people? The answer is maybe both. Because God's good news deals with the corporate and the personal darkness. Number three, 
What's the message? God will give you and Elizabeth a son, just like he did for Sarah, just like he did for Hannah. And John will generate incredible joy for you as a couple and for the whole nation. Number four, for John will be great in the sight of the Lord. If you're on social media, social media is full of great people. Sporting greatness, beautiful greatness, business greatness, academic greatness, nothing compares to John. As Jesus said in Matthew 11, there is no one greater than John. Why? Because he will be used by God to do his work. His arrival means God's promised salvation has begun. But John is not the saviour. Verse 5, sorry, um, number 5, John will be a prophet like Elijah. That's the point of the Malachi verses. What Gabriel does is say, Zechariah, you know your Bible. Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, you know that God promised that before he came to deal with sin once for all in the final judgment, God would send Elijah the prophet. See it there in Malachi verse 5. We'll come up on the screen in a sec. There it is. This is 400 plus years before. Now, that verse does not mean Elijah was coming back from the dead. What it means is God will send an Elijah-like prophet, and that is John. He dresses like Elijah. He avoids alcohol like the prophets. And his work is exactly the same as Elijah. He is about calling people to turn back to God and listen to him. Now, the sixth part of the message is John will have the Holy Spirit. He will empower him to speak for God. Yet you may not have noticed that it's more intense than any of the prophets of the Old Testament because John will always have the um, Spirit. It'll never leave him. But Even more, he will have the spirit in the womb before he is born. And then number seven, John's impact will be enormous. People will hear John's call to repent, to turn back to God, and they will. Just put your finger on verse 17. Verse 17. And John will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Remember these verses from Malachi? To turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous. To make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Uh, For those of you who are dads, you know it's a miracle when your children listen to you and do what you say. It is a bigger miracle when the father is impacted by the child. See it there? See the order there? As promised in Malachi, John is going to bring such a spiritual national revival so far reaching that stubborn, sinful, spiritually dead parents are going to look at what's going to happen in their children and say, I want some of that. John is going to see such revival that the young people will help these stuck-in-the-mud old people 
finally come back to God. And the goal is that there would be a people ready to meet their God, ready for the salvation offered by Jesus. But only those who listen to John's call to turn will be saved. And that pattern is the same today. Where there is no repentance, there is no grace. When there is no turning back to God, there is no blessing from God. Where there is no change, there is no chance. Trusting God is never theoretical. Those who turn and trust God, they turn from their sin and they trust God and become one of his people. Well, Luke goes on in verse 18 with a human story. One of the most intriguing aspects of this gospel is that he includes the disappointing moments. For those on Instagram, this is not an Instagram picture. This is real life. Zachariah's response is disappointing, yet it reflects humanity. Zechariah is like Eve in the garden. Zechariah is like Israel on the edge of the promised land. Zechariah is like anyone who doesn't trust God and says to God, prove yourself. Zechariah is rightfully shocked at Gabriel's news. Now he and his wife, they really are old. And this is the first direct word from God in 400 years. But do you see what happens? His shock makes him lean towards disbelief and he doubts God's word. And then he says to God, I want a confirming sign like Abraham and Gideon and Hezekiah. He says, show me you can be trusted, God. Look what Gabriel says, verse 19. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled at the proper time. Gabriel gives Zechariah a sign whilst rebuking him for doubting God's word. Zechariah will be mute, unable to speak until the day he names his baby John. And that silence will be a sign to him of his lack of trust and it will also conceal what God is doing from the crowds until the proper time. What Gabriel then does is challenge Zechariah and you and me to trust what God says. If you're a person of faith, it is never about trusting your gut. It's never about trusting the crowd. It is about trusting what God says. Because everything God says happens, just as we saw with Malachi and today. 
Well, Gabriel's finished. He leaves. But the crowds, they're waiting for him to come out and give the final blessing. So they're sitting there and they're waiting and they're waiting and they go, what's happened? And then Zechariah comes out mute, just as God said he would be. And Luke tells us the crowds conclude that Zechariah has had an encounter with God similar to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 3.26. After finishing his week of service, Zechariah goes home. And just as God said, Elizabeth conceives. And then she hides away. Why did she hide away? We have no idea. Maybe she was worried about the health of the baby. Maybe she was preparing her heart. We don't know. But what we do know is that Elizabeth's heart response is so different to Zechariah's. See it there? The promised joy explodes out of her heart. Her Lord has done this. He has removed her shame. Now we know this baby will have a special role, but he will also feel a personal need for Elizabeth. You see, God is at work even when her husband acts poorly. God can always be trusted. What is one of the common features of Aladdin? Terminator 2, Titanic, Return of the Jedi, The Jungle Book, Blade Runner, National Treasure and Love Actually. They all have a do you trust me scene. That climactic point where one person has to choose to trust another or not. Now, some of those scenes make you cry and weep and all that stuff. Some make you cheer because it's like, yes, and others just make you cringe. That's like 90% of them, right? What we've seen today is that God is active in the darkness. We've seen an old promise fulfilled. We've seen a salvation plan initiated. We've seen Zachariah silenced, an old couple have a baby. The point, God's word never fails. That is why Christians have certain faith. But that same God calls us to trust him at his word. Christian faith, it's not vague. Christian faith is not living all week trusting yourself and then turning up at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning and getting some God stuff. That is not Christianity. Christian faith is not trusting the church. Christian faith is not trusting leaders. Christian faith is trusting the God of the Bible and he's called to trust Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. And that trust decision is the most important one in your life. More than whether you'll trust your spouse, more than whether you'll trust your friends, more than whether you trust your boss. Whether you trust God at his word has eternal implications. For if you choose not to trust God's word, then you shut yourself to judgment. When we navigate round God's word, when we disbelieve it or refuse to bow down it, we'll not just be mute like Zechariah. We will come before God with our sins and face the fixed 
final and fair judgment of God. But if you choose not to navigate around this, but to go straight and say, I'm going to trust God at his word, then you will trust Jesus Christ and you will be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life. This week, Eternity News shared the story of Kanishka Raphael. Let's go back a slide, please. He is the current Archbishop of Sydney, Anglican Archbishop. And Kanishka, the story says, he was raised a Buddhist. And at 21 years of age, he was an active Buddhist, exploring temple and the learnings and writings of Buddha and practicing meditation. But at the same time in Sydney, he was going to uni with Christian friends and they were doing the Christian life. And so one day he asked his Christian friend, what's being a Christian all about? His friend says this, I've lost control of my life to Jesus Christ. That shocked Kanishka because in Buddhism, he's been meditating and meditating to control his emotions and ambitions and desires so he could be released from them. But here was his friend who he respected, who said, He'd lost control of his life to a guy who lived 2,000 years ago. Well, his friend gave him a copy of John's Gospel and he read it. Here's what Kanishka says. God in his kindness convicted me that I was reading history, not a fairy tale. He allowed me to see the vitality, the beauty, the majesty of Jesus Christ, a person who had friends and enemies, who had compassion and a mission, who was a man of emotions but also seemingly always in control. It occurred to me that as I'd been reading the gospel, the Father had been drawing me to Jesus. Eventually, I could not think of any good reason for not being on Jesus' side. In God's kindness, he saved me. As we consider the evidence of Jesus, God asks, will you trust him? Let's pray. Lord God, our faith is certain because you speak and never lie. May we centre our faith on what you say. For we know that you are the rock on which we can build our lives. Help us to not be swayed by doubt or fear, but to know the living God speaks and always keeps his promise. Amen.